0: Hello, I'm Laura Hamilton. Welcome back to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's only culinary bookshop. Today, we're talking about catering. It's an industry that many of us interact with, but that few of us really understand. You might go to a wedding or a fundraiser and food just sort of magically appears in places that sometimes don't even have kitchens. So how does it get there, and who makes it, and how is it even possible to serve so many people at one time? In their latest book, Hotbox, Matt Lee and Ted Lee decided to take a look at the catering industry in New York City, where the business is competitive, the work is grueling, and city rules mean that a very specific type of ingenuity is required to get all those meals on the table. Matt and Ted grew up in South Carolina, and they've written two really excellent Southern cookbooks, so Hotbox is a bit of a departure for them. They actually went undercover and reveal what they learned working in these incredibly demanding jobs. They're in conversation with Warren Etheridge. Warren is a Seattle-based film producer and interviewer, and we're very lucky to have him join us for many of our conversations. This discussion happened in the Book Larder Kitchen in April of 2019. Enjoy!
1: So we are going to talk about hot box tonight, and it's a great look at the catering industry, and I certainly learned a lot in reading this, and there's so much to, to know and to clue people into, but we'll start with this. If you go to an average-sized function in New York City, let's say 500,000 people, how many people have touched the food served that night by the time you eat it? <laughs> this is, is a great question, question.
2: <laughs>
3: this a <that's> fantastic <laughs> question. More than you think.
1: Um, you know, I don't wanna talk
2: over Matt because it's sort of his chapter. Because I'm the older brother. Um, but there's a chapter in the book that's one of the first parties that Matt's working and touching the food becomes very much a part of the chapter because it's a very fancy dinner for the board of trustees of the Frick Museum. So 14 people, almost all billionaires, Steven in the museum. The preparation for that dinner for 14 starts probably five days before in the production kitchen. Because there is no kitchen at the Frick. Remember, the Frick was a venue that only became a venue in the 1970s during the sort of recession when all the cultural institutions in New York City realized they could make money by renting out their spaces for Fancy dinners, but that didn't exist before then.
3: And they know? haven't put in running water since. So, so the kitchen is the service elevator vestibule, which has a drafty fire exit, and that's where they store the wheelchairs. And so you paper the whole room and um, you roll in a hot box. And of course, the hot box is the name of this book. And the reason for that is that the hot box is this 19th century hack. That makes restaurant-quality food possible in food-inappropriate spaces like that elevator vestibule. It's like an aluminum, upright, you know, box it just looks Five and a
2: half foot like tall nothing. metal cabinet with racks for sheet pans and that's the transporting food in that, putting it in the walk-in, making it cold and transporting the food to wherever it goes. In New York, since there's not, you're not allowed to have any open flames, you're not allowed to have propane, and you're certainly not allowed to use the electricity because you might blow power to the whole place, and then there's no party, there's no gala. The workaround is that you cook all the food off site in the production kitchen, you par cook it, and then you rewarm it in these hot boxes over Sterno. You, tr- you, you pull all the food from it when you arrive at the venue, and then you transform it into a uh, sort of oven.
3: It's like a hot air balloon, I mean it's that precise, like you just really don't have any control at all, there's no temperature (laughs) gauges, there's no like, you know, turning up the heat or anything. Uh, your only control is that you could put more sternos on a sheet pan or fewer. (laughs) That's it. And you can open the door a little bit more or less. And as I learned um, firsthand, you don't want to close the door all the way to trap the heat in. seems sensible. But what you do is after about five or ten minutes it it consumes all the oxygen and snuffs out all the flame. And then ten minutes later you discover that everything's (laughs) <laughs> right. And yeah, and
2: there are two hundred tenderloins. So in that cracking thing. the door and open
3: another. an inch is kind of where you want to be. But who would know?
2: But it wasn't designed to do any of this work. So there's no temperature gauge. There's no. There's not. Not even a graduated hasp that will hold that thing an inch open. So. People have various packs and stuff. I mean, this is a long way around to your question. How many hands (laughs) have (laughs) touched the food? And the Freak Museum. (laughs) The whole chapter about the Freak Museum is Matt and everyone like sticking their fingers into that sauce to see
3: if it's really broken and seeing if like whipping more cream and more eggs and doing it. It's not wholly sanitary let's break it down so um, back in the prep kitchen there are probably 20 uh, chefs on a busy Thursday morning because remember it's an accordion business so Friday, Saturday are the busy days and they're doing all the bulk reduction, like chopping and processing and stuff and containerizing everything and giving nice color to the proteins and then shipping them out so that a separate crew, a fiesta crew, can then try to make sense of it, reassemble it, and finish it, like bring it to the point where you've got 337 portions, medium rare, and whatever it was called for. Uh, there are
2: two separate staffs, you know, the prep cooks and the fiesta cooks, and they generally don't cross over. We did some we did we did both because yes, we wanted to do both and because we could not have the prep kitchen i mean the prep kitchen is the kind of place where you literally you uh, i'll never I, it changed how i cook in my home kitchen forever the first day i worked in the prep kitchen because the first thing i learned is that the complete dissociation of Task and result. It was like there's a bin of carrots, peel them. My first question is, oh great, where are they going?
3: <laughs> Who's going to eat them? No, no, he no. wants want that satisfaction, <laughs> closure like with food. Like, like it's something. What you do in your like, so where are they going? You don't get it. it. Doesn't
2: matter. Here I'm going to peel one for you. I'm going to show you what it looks like. Do them all. Thank you. And so I do that, and then I hand them off. You know, they get blanched by someone else. I don't know what party they're going to. I don't know. It's not my job to know anything about anything except for peeling carrots for all of us who love home cooking but who sometimes complain about like you know chopping onions it's kind of like you never realized how much of a luxury chopping an onion for your own dish your own <laughs> kitchen your where own you friends. see, for your own friends who get the thing it's like the entire prep kitchen was a like challenge of you know trying to an, adopt you know just realizing how how much of a privilege it is to actually know where your labor is going when you're working in food?
1: <laughs> I, I still want the answer,
3: but I, I have so many so, follow-ups over so here.
2: So
1: here's the thing. He wants a number. <laughs> so here's the thing. so 20,
3: uh, in, the 20 in the prep kitchen. 20 in the prep kitchen, and then like three to 20 in the Fiesta kitchen. <laughs> and then the serving staff. And, and then the cater waiters, yeah. which is a whole other culture we didn't really embed right. Like we didn't become <laughs> cater waiters. Because we were fascinated by the food part
2: of it. Every single one of those people has touched the food. I mean,
3: it's like... With purple food service gloves on.
2: Right. I mean, there's purple food service gloves on because if a health inspector could walk in at any time, and you have to have the purple food service gloves on, you have to have the thing of sanitizer in the center of the prep table. Okay, that's
3: too much information. Come on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But the gloves aren't always on.
3: They aren't, and that's what we revealed. It's like, in a perfect world, the gloves are on. (laughs) And at the Frick Museum, the event Ted discussed, which happened to be my first, like, yes, forward-facing event, it was just me and two others, Juan Soto, who's one of the champions of running that proofing box in New York City, and Patrick Phelan, who was the executive chef and who welcomed us into catering and who is to credit for, like, this book because otherwise we were otherwise un- unemployable. but So the three of us were uh, cooking this thing, and uh, the Frick is, um, the event planner there is famous as a germaphobe. And, and we never met her that night, thankfully, because we didn't have our gloves on, um, because it's an impediment. Like, sticking your finger in the pot is like touch and taste at the same time. And so you, you're feeling the texture, you're feeling the temperature, and you're tasting it frankly like there's just no time to like go wash your hands before the next dip in and there <laughs> we didn't have enough tasting spoons i mean we would have needed a thousand tasting spoons for the, it was the heat of the moment and things were going wrong i won't like you know tell the whole story but um i, I sc- can read it in the book I, you can Which read it in the book. Right. chapter three um i screwed something up and i was uh, mortified and the guys weren't giving me too much heat it was okay um but I was convinced we could save it, and they were convinced we couldn't. And they kind of pulled the emergency cord and called for an emergency run, rerun to get three quarts of Parmesan from the prep kitchen just to save this thing. Because they knew, after so many years in catering, that no one will complain about a melted cheese sauce. Um, <laughs> no one. So you just add more cheese, that's the secret. More cheese and more cream. More
1: cheese. more cheese and more cream. Let's go back to the hot box for a second, because uh-huh. you guys give a lot of credit to Jean-Claude Nedelec, I believe that's how you pronounce it. Yes, yes, uh, yes. for Amazing. innovating, not really inventing, but innovating this yeah. idea of the sterno in the hot box. Right.
2: It's a sort of, like, actually probably wouldn't pass muster if the fire department really checked out what was happening. It's a fudge. It's a fudge, and everyone sort of, like, just pretending it doesn't happen, right? Because, because, because it know. doesn't sound good to the customers The customers wouldn't think like, oh, you know, I paid $2,000 for this gala ticket and this tenderloin is coming out of <laughs> a sternum box that was you know, used for garbage at another party just two nights ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is we, we have a whole chapter on party rentals, where do these things come from? <laughs> they're very costly, so they're usually rented from a party rental shop. There's a whole other chapter on Party so oh. Run. <laughs> so, so the answer is the answer is like nobody cares about and that was that gets to a, another part of this. It's like means. Why is this so invisible? The, the reason why nobody's like the Cress core company out of wherever it is and it's actually i think it's in north dakota who makes these transport cabinets the reason why they've never like they've never had the feedback come back to them like actually people are using these things as ovens so you may want to like coordinate with them and figure out how you can make their lives easier Is this labor is invisible it's not seen through and many
3: layers of
2: cloaking. through many layers of cloaking that benefit various
1: constituencies
3: the layers of invisibility include um the fact that it's a party like it's your party it's a wedding or whatever the celebrants are important not the chefs you know it's a sort of anti-chef situation you want to be behind the pipe and trade it's also messy like you know you as a chef don't want the celebrants to see what you're doing there because you know you're sticking your finger in the pot and and you're you know you're working on card tables, basically. Yeah. I mean, there's um, a protective there you know, because in catering, especially off-site, you know, most of this book really concerns the most dangerous catering, which is when you take it away from your comfort zone and you're out in a field under a tent or you're in um, a dusty museum that was never designed to serve food, you know, you're always on the precipice of failure, catastrophic failure. In a restaurant, if you screw up a dish or you run out of scallops or, you know, there's a bad attitude among the service staff, like you might lose a table and lose five customers or eight customers, but if uh, the desserts are about to be served out to 770 people and someone tips over the parfaits that you like layered just so in these racks and stuff, like you might not be able to serve dessert at all. and what do you say to the host then? What do you say to the mother of the bride? Like, sorry, we're gonna
1: order in. What's <laughs> <laughs> so fascinating to me about that is that uh, so much of this business is so transient by its very nature of its being, On the steady that you're putting that much investment in people that you don't work with constantly. Oh my gosh, it's all mercenary. And
3: right. because of the accordion thing, like as a caterer um, employer, like you can't hire full-time employees more than the bare minimum and so most everyone is a, a mercenary who's working for your competitors from night to night i mean so there's no institutional secrets the gossip, gossip networks are incredible <laughs> because right. of that
2: i mean we we interviewed a lot of people who are figures in the business and one of the first one of the first interviews we had with was with danny meyer he's a restaurateur in new york very famous for creating beautiful restaurants that um you know create a culture of regulars and you know they call them you know the house you know there's a reason why it's called a house it's like this regularity place in the neighborhood you want to come back to all the time because you know it's got great value it makes you feel good and you know he was the first one to be because he he started a catering business in the mid 2000s like 2005 um, called Hudson Yards and he it was only, he only started the business because he wanted the restaurant space at the Museum of Modern Art. He wanted what's now the modern. He wanted that space, but if you wanted that space, you also had to, you would be uh, preferred for uh, catering their events. You had to run the the, uh, employee cafeteria. You had to run the cafeteria on the fifth floor, and you had to run the cafeteria on the first floor. So you had to do all that if you wanted the restaurant. So he had to become a caterer, and he had no experience in catering. Um, and those and, are big cafes too, that's like yeah, what, 300, huge,
1: 350, right? and 65. Yeah. Exactly,
2: and he built this huge, and he, you know, one of the first things he sort of, I mean, he's very honest about his failures, which is cool. You know, one of the first things he realized that, is that being pref- preferred caterer at MoMA, only meant that he was one of like twenty caterers. It was by no it was means not exclusive. exclusive. But it was it at the, was top. Was at the top of the list. list. He was at the top of the list, and I think there might have been a, a a percentage of discount if you did go with him. But like, since he had no he had no experience doing events, it didn't matter how good his restaurants were. No event planner would work with him because an event planner is the one who all the stress falls on. All the blame. And until she's done a 350 seat dinner, which is that her bread and butter, she's not going to do it with you. If you, it, no matter if you have Union Square Cafe, if you're Thomas Keller, it doesn't matter. If you haven't done it. So, different catering's
3: different from restaurants. Because catering's
2: different from restaurants. Different skill set. In a restaurant, you know the tickets. That stress of the line, you have your mise en place, you know who's done it, maybe you've done it yourself, you love that mise en place. You know where place. the bathroom is. You know where the bathroom is, you know everything <laughs> about this place where you work. And those tickets come in and it's like a bell curve and they start coming in at 6.30 and then it goes up like this and then it's like you know, 9.30, 9.15 and then it comes down. In catering, it's
3: first course, main course. Dessert, you <laughs> know. It's simultaneous the expectation service. is that everyone be served simultaneously. So, and it's the same thing. It's not like people <clears throat> ordering, oh, the fish and the pork and the, the vegetarian. The it's, like, it's all the same thing, all at the same time, more or less. Because if you stretch that like 15 minutes, either a mutiny might develop. Right? <laughs> this side of the room sees the other side of them finishing up their entree, and they still haven't got it. You, know, you just have to like, do it. It's an all or nothing Cataclysm. I mean, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy.
1: I want to go back to Danny Meyer for a yeah. second. So at some point he says when you talk about catering, what you're doing is you're selling security. So he started as Hudson Yards, right. and then he changed the name to Union Square, to Union right? Square. which was the name because. of his successful business. Right. Why didn't he start with that if it's about security?
2: Exactly. I mean, <laughs> he, but he had to learn that. Yeah. I mean, he, he talked about the other things he didn't know going into it. You know, he didn't realize like you know there was there's no real uniform in catering, so you can't create a service culture out of like how your how your people look. He was actually in the modern. The modern opened and it was beautiful place, and eventually won you know James Beard awards and stuff. There was another caterer in you know early on came to one of the opening functions, and he was set. Danny Meyer said to the skater, oh, you know, I'm so glad you're here. I recently got into catering. We should talk sometime. I'd love it. And the guy was like, are you kidding? You just don't get it. Every event you get, we don't get. And every event we get, you don't get. We're never going to be friends. (laughs) So that was another thing. I don't know if it's competitive out here in Seattle, but it's like, you know, in New York, you know, a coterie of restaurateurs, they'll talk shop and stuff, but that's not the way it is in New York.
3: You know, he's all about a service culture that requires a lot of education. And you train your staff and you, you know, lead them to this higher place. And, but in catering, if he spent money and time teaching, you know, 10 people, they take those lessons to his competitors tomorrow because that's because you can't just have one gear you have to,
2: you have to, you know, if you want to fill your week Monday through Friday or Monday through Sunday, most of the people we work with work every day of the week. You have
1: to have five or six or eight different bookers numbers, you know. The degree of difficulty for catering is much mm-hmm. higher than a restaurant. Well, that's I mean, hard to
2: say, and the restaurateurs would
3: dispute that for
1: sure.
2: I'm sure line cooks at a restaurant would say, absolutely not. I mean, when that ticket thing, and I've, you've seen that in an open kitchen, and mm-hmm. the ticket printer is just like spitting out these orders, for and you're really? just like, I'm so glad I'm not there. <laughs> um, we've never worked in a kitchen, in a restaurant kitchen, so we don't really know what that's like, but just the mentality and the mindset are so different because you just have to be comfortable in a place that's brand new every night. And, you know, you might have worked the Park Avenue Gala the last five years running, but, you know, likelier than not, whatever the next venue is, is not someplace you've been in the last few months or so. And there might be new things about it that you have yet to learn, like the sprinklers are suddenly today more sensitive.
3: We make this analogy early in the book, but it's a lot more like mash than... (laughs) Uh, kitchen nightmares Um, and what we discovered when we dug into the history of the early practitioners and the people who really enabled this insane tipping at windmills situation of uh, cooking out of hot boxes in food inappropriate places was that a a lot of them uh, in fact most of the ones we um, looked into had a military background were military children or they were in the military and also the theatrical component in fact you know, two of the key figures were in USO tours, like, you know, that kind of military and theatrical, you know, that campaign of like, you know, you have to be comfortable, you know, living from city to city or, you know, having the, the scene change from time to time. And then also the ep- epigraph to the book is Sean Driscoll.
2: You're only as good as your last play."
0: Oh,
3: and every night is opening night. Was, you have to keep that kind of we, celebratory like, yes, this is the only place to be tonight. It's your fiftieth wedding anniversary, but it's, or it's but that the was, you know, fundraising gala. That was and yet it's like one of three that night they're doing that And there's that, three tomorrow night. I mean, that was that was one that of energy? the
2: other like, you know, fundamental learning experiences I had after like peeling the carrots <laughs> and discovering I would never know what my labor was actually going to, whether it was a crudité or a soup or whatever, was Oh my God, they do six parties in one night? You know, how, how do they even have the staff who, you know, who does that? And it's like, it's not your job to worry about <laughs> Just know that that's how many parties we have tonight. I just couldn't imagine that there could be a company that could process that much information, resources, food. Um, food. How do you keep the food from one party from going to the other? There's a system for that. <laughs>
1: What's the key thing about this, though, like the, the theatrical part and all that? seems like it requires a lot of energy, and unless I misread the book, anybody who did for a long time doesn't seem necessarily all that happy with it in the end.
2: wears <laughs> <laughs> <where is> that,
3: <laughs> I mean, it, it's... We struggled with this the entire project, which we began, I guess, the first light bulb went off in 2011, and we finally finished up last summer um, with the manuscript. Yeah, I mean... What kind of person selects this over restaurants or creating your own cookie business or like any other way to express your love of food or your creativity about recipes? Um, and, I mean, it's not enough just to say, oh, well, they love to be traveling around with food, yeah. you know, in the middle of the I night think with, with no acclaim, you know, with no thanks. no acclaim, no um, thanks.
2: What's appealing as... A catering chef who's at the executive level executive chef level is that the money is better than restaurants and so there is that pull there's a pair of brothers who taught us you know pretty much everything we knew about catering and they just you ask them about and they just say I love this you know I I just love it Um, and they love the rhythm of it the execution like 150% you know the organization it's like every challenge every challenge every party it's just like But what's amazing about them is, like, they're never demoralized, they're never discouraged. And that's one thing that I could never do, (laughs) is, like, dissociate the emotional content of a failure, for example, in the kitchen, from, like, you know... Your future. My future, because it was just like, I, I can't get over this. It's like, no, you have to get over this, because... Or derv cocktail hours over, and we are starting a seven-course meal. So shut up about how you <laughs> messed up. You know that's not the kind of character that gets drawn to this kind of work. The kind of character drawn to this work is you can't so be a
3: perfectionist. It. You have to be an idealist. You have to str- right. you know, be sh- shooting for the stars. You want your food to register on a restaurant level at the highest level, but you cannot sweat it if you end up compromising. Right. So Everyone in catering has could, to compromise. The client, well, right. the chef, the event planner. The, the event planner. The I mean, imagine Hampton.
2: like an event you've been planning forever. That's you know a five hundred thousand dollar wedding in the Hamptons, and it's pouring rain. There's going to be compromises.
3: Three days before the wedding, the party planner decides that key lime pie is not it. We're going to rhubarb gruboff or whatever you've already purchased the key lines and you know it's just, you just roll, have to roll with it you have to be kind of okay with you know catastrophe
2: so it really is you're dealing with people who are like the 1% of the 1% and there's a lot of bad behavior and there's a lot of people who are not used, used to being told no
3: and so and that's why we wanted to write a book about it yeah <laughs> We haven't dropped a single celebrity name, and there were a few that we held back just because we thought it would be distracting to the narrative. And for legal reasons. <laughs> Ted signed one non-disclosure, non-disclosure agreement in the whole time that we researched. I didn't sign a single one, but... but so you can tell if Ted told you. Yeah. <laughs> It was Diana Ross shaking her fist at Ted walking across her lawn because her son was marrying Ashley Simpson or something like that. Yeah. So many things wrong with that story. <laughs> well, we, we use that wedding as an example in the weddings chapter. There's a party rentals chapter, an allergies chapter, and a weddings chapter, um, among other stuff. And the weddings chapter, the feature of it is that, um, and the insight was from this very wedding that, you know, don't belabor the food. Like, don't make try to make it tell some elaborate story of how you met Sam. Like, um, <laughs> comfort food is what works. And the very richest people and the very smartest people tend to order in the most comforty of comfort foods because they know everyone thrills to that. And it makes for a wonderful evening and a wonderful wedding. And You know, it wasn't unsophisticated food, but it was, like... Well-executed, fried
2: yeah. chicken... Bolognese, macaroni and cheese, a carving station, and good music, you know? And it's like... And a little bit of marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are certain things you can't argue with. And, you know, another wedding we sort of counterposed that to is a wedding where, like, literally every dish was a tribute to a trip that the happy couple had taken. And, it's, you know, and there's like... I mean, if you've ever... I mean, it's so clearly someone who's planning a wedding who actually has never... Done the empathy of like imagining what it's, what that emotion is like because like those levels, layers of intellectual connection with food and meaning of food, it's like it's, it's, lost it's Completely in lost in the context of like a hundred degree barn, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the Hudson
3: Valley. It's <laughs> the best example of that, can you tell the Afogato story? There's a sales chapter too. There's because a sales. the sales aspect, as those of you in catering know, is huge really fraught I mean you're nine months out and the sales team really doesn't know from the kitchen crew and they're almost at loggerheads with the kitchen crew because they're just trying to get the person to the dotted line so they'll promise the earth like right and then the kitchen crew has to
2: deal with it nine months later like you know, what's the story you want to tell? <laughs> you know, and so they were like, we want to tell this story of how we went to Rome on one of our first dates. Eugene ordered an affogato, you know, an espresso poured over a little ball of vanilla ice cream. The waiter, knowing that he was not Italian, not Italian misinterpreted and thought he said avocado. <laughs> so he brought an avocado. <laughs> And that was a funny moment in their relationship. So, for the wedding, (laughs) they wanted the dessert before the wedding cake to be, the pre-dessert, to be an avocado affogato. So, avocado ice cream with an espresso whatever.
3: And so, the unlucky chef had to research and development, R&D, like, at their expense, you know, he charged them handsomely for it, this, like, avocado ice cream with the shot of Espresso over the top because can you imagine if it didn't work and it was disgusting? Sorry, your dumb idea it was disgusting. Your guests might not enjoy it, but here's the bill for four thousand like, know, dollars.
2: So what I have after doing this book is an extraordinary appreciation of catered food. I mean, I, I just think pe- the people who do it are insanely talented. Caterers know so much about what works and what doesn't. And it's kind of like you can trust them. Like if you feel like, you know, you have a referral or you, you went to a great party and it was like delicious. Ask who the caterer is and remember that. They they know what works.
1: Uh, we have time for some questions from the audience. Yes. First of all, I'm enjoying the book I'm about two-thirds
0: of the way through. It's fabulous. So Thank I you. Oh. Read it, absolutely. Thank um, you. Uh, my question is, now that you know what you know, what would you avoid? Is there something you just would never touch at a catered event?
3: There's some things you should seek out. Oh, yeah. Uh, First of all, and this secret we give away in the book is that there's almost always a silent vegetarian option. They're just kind of holding it in reserve. It's got special attention to it, so it might be extra interesting. Of course, it's the caterer's nightmare that the silent vegetarian option goes viral. They've only brought 20% of that. Uh, They bring about 70% of each option just Mm -hmm. to make sure that everyone kind of, you know, gets it. That's their odds.
1: Um, to, to them, is there a but, lot of food waste?
3: Oh my God. The chapter we wish we had written for this book was the waste chapter. There are a lot yeah. of... Because of the structural waste like that. Right. So you, yeah. you're bringing 140% entrees for 100%. And there are plenty of staff who will eat into that 40% extra, but still. And then there's just situations. Um, uh, there's one in the book um, at some gala, the Whitney Gala or something, when... Um, The first two courses kind of underperformed. The first two courses were like,
2: when they were presented, they cashed a big check, and it didn't cash out. Like, the Mm -hmm. dividend was not there. And so, there was an after party. People split before dessert. There were literally like 10 or 15 people, me being one, (laughs) eating it. And it was actually the best dish, you know, of the night. And 500 of them in the trash. Mm -hmm. Which is, but to your point, is there something you shouldn't eat? I don't think there really is anything you shouldn't eat. It's good to know if you do eat meat that short rib, things like short ribs and uh, lamb shanks are always gonna be more succulent and wonderful than like the filet of fish that's really difficult to do. I mean, people can do it great, um, but it's a more challenging protein to finish in a delicious way. I think if there's, it's probably the same in Seattle as it is in New York, if there are caterers, who are doing things that are dangerous, they probably don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. the real truth. I've never had more confidence in going to a big event than I do now, because I realized that like, if
3: anything bad happens, you're out.
0: This may not be the case at $2,000 plate galas, mm-hmm. I know, but why is it so often that the hors
3: d'oeuvres are so much better than the plate <laughs> That's a great question,
2: and it's because in general i think the most of the hors d'oeuvres are room temperature you can do a lot more at room temperature than you can from a hot box from a hot box everything has to be par cooked and then reheated right for your past hors d'oeuvres you could do um ceviches that's a, a perfect example of like do a ceviche where you like instead of having the green apple and the fish and everything shipped like pre-diced you can do it on site because you have like an hour in advance and it doesn't take that long it doesn't take that long to cure so all the all the food <laughs> flavors will be fresher and poppier and everything coming out of the hot box is more roasty and
1: rustic I want to say on behalf of the book and and, and, and the Lee brothers said one thing i like is that the book is very revelatory but it's not snarky or mean-spirited as a bourdain book might have been it's more loving in the, the form of like prepares book on the line, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, if Ted is the optimist and you're the pessimist, yes. that puts me right in the middle, so I must be the realist. Yes. So I, uh, <laughs>
3: thank you for that, so, so, I So
1: I can tell you, having read the book, that it's absolutely fantastic. I learned a ton. Uh, there's even a recipe of, for something for 30 gallons, so uh, if you need that many people <laughs> uh, sort of at some point, you're fine. Great stories, great information, uh, written by two fantastic writers. Uh, one who still has some therapy uh, needs, but that's- <laughs> no shame. I'm all about it. <laughs> but a round of applause for Matt. And Ted.
0: Many thanks to Matt Lee and Ted Lee for visiting us at BookLarder, to Warren Etheridge for leading the fantastic discussion, and to Henry Holt Publishing. You can get 10% off a copy of Hotbox or any other books discussed on this podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at booklarder. To subscribe to our monthly newsletter and get more information about our author talks and cooking classes, visit booklarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, please visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.